Jeff Jarrett's testicles for punching bags. Oh, Beetlejuice. Oh, the revenge of the Black Punch. Look at Beetlejuice. He must have been under the ring. He's a luchador. And now, as they chant Beetlejuice, Booker T's got the... He's got the belt fell out. But now the only thing he's got to do is grab the man as he did. That's it. Shot. The high blow. Damn that cockroach. Damn him. Booker T is the world heavyweight champion. Hello and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara. Some people out there call me the podcast legend, but you can call me what you wish. Within reason, obviously. Joining me today for our October 2000 WCW show, we have once more Mr. Eric Landstrom. Eric, Hello. You can call me Eric, and for you, we'll stick to Rory, except for that one time that Stud Muffin came into the picture a couple of years ago. <laughs> Keep it easy. And Mr. Daniel DeWitt is back. Dan, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been good. Interesting, interesting month indeed. Very much so, and it's great to have you on board for it. Two other volumes are available for you for October 2000. You've got Chris White taking you through all things WWF, and Chris Lacey has you covered re-ECW. So today, before we hop into the time machine to look at WCW, I have some very important news to impart, said he airily. Read the direction of the World Championship Wrestling portion of our shows here on the podcast. Eric and I have taken the mutual decision to amend the format fairly substantially. When we did the show last month and we waded through the matches at Full Brawl and on many occasions got bogged down by seaweed, or worse, it became very clear that there is precious little to actually say about these matches any longer on WCW pay-per-views. Furthermore, the final six months of the company, and I can say that now because we're not in the time machine, are utterly seismic in the great fault lines of professional wrestling. Indeed, it's probably fair to say the shockwaves of them are still being felt here in 2020. So, we have elected to make these shows a lot more news-heavy than they have been in the past. With everything going on behind the curtain, we don't feel we would be doing our job properly if we just squeezed discussion about it into 10 minutes at the start of the show, because we would simply have to do a 15-minute play-by-play breakdown of, for example, Reno versus The Wall. There are at least three huge news stories that broke in October that we must ensure that we do the proper justice to, as you will get to hear when I am done rabbiting. On top of that, we are also amending how we look at the pay-per-views themselves. As opposed to trying to glean something, anything, from any of the meaningless and irrelevant in-ring action, we will give you an overview of the event and look at the biggest matches only with the blow-by-blow analysis to which you have become accustomed over the last seven years. And before Bamba pipes up, yes, all WCW contributors will still be watching the entire pay-per-view that month. For example, this is what I mean. There is a Shane Douglas match at Halloween Havoc. How many more times can listeners put up with me burying the tosser? Okay, I might enjoy it. All right, I do enjoy it. But I doubt many other people out there do. So do stay with us on for WCW programming over the next six months. And I should repeat that all other shows will remain the same. But this gives us the opportunity to do a proper deep dive into the really proper important stuff. Uh, There are perhaps surprising paucity of podcasts out there that really get into the minutiae of the demise of WCW. So this is where we come in. And of course, we will do so in real time. So, Eric, your thoughts on what we have decided to do 
on this side of the Mason-Dixon line until we get to March 2001? Uh, I think it comes down to two things. One, uh, some of these matches are just, <laughs> we, we, we just keep saying the same stuff every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, it, it's, it's, we will still watch them and we'll still talk about them and invite everybody to provide their feedback and everything. But there's a lot of important stuff happening. And we also realize that, yeah, there's not a whole lot out there that really objectively covers this. There's things from sides and people with interests, but really not that really boils all this down into an objective look um, that's available. That's at least recently available. So we also don't want to record for our podcast because we all have lives and we don't get paid for this. So I think it all just came down to balancing what's most important for the spirit of the show. And this is what we've chosen. And we hope you like, it. I don't think it's going to be that big of a change. It'll just be kind of a, it, it, the show won't be balanced as before is the way that I'm kind of looking at it. No, that's a very good way of putting it. I think we're just focusing on, like I said in the read there, the most important things, which is what we always aim to do for every month, for every promotion, and we have since we started. But timeline integrity or not, everybody listening to these shows, be it today, be it in a year's time, be it in 10 years' time, they are going to know that the final six months of WCW, it's all about what happens behind the curtain. And we want to make sure we do it the proper justice. Take it month by month because obviously there's very little at this almost none at the time unless you count the newsletters of going through this in a real-time basis but in the last 20 years i was surprised i was looking through my wrestling podcast hopper is bursting at the seams and has been for ever since i started listening to these things but wcw last six months aren't really covered in anything other than the comedic humorous tone and we like to take it very seriously here as broadcast journalists here on the podcast. Mm. A lightness of touch, a lightness of heart, but we want to really un, you know, uncover the stone, as it has been said, and maybe just try to get a sense of what really did happen between now and that fateful day in March 2001. But that is quite enough for me in November 2020 mode. The time machine is still here. We are about to climb into it. So after the worry noise, it is time for it to be the 31st of October, year 2000. Gentlemen, there is only one place to start this month in our WCW show. I am going to quote almost directly from our friend Mr. Wade Keller at The Torch. New story reported two weeks ago. Remember that things might have changed a little bit, but let's let ourselves get excited, shall we? Here we go. WWF becomes top contender to purchase WCW. By next week, as it was written, so almost as you listen to this, WWF E-Inc. could be announcing the purchase of their longtime main competitor, WCW. Meanwhile, Eric Bischoff, Mandalay Sports and any other potential buyer appear to be out of the picture. As it is now, WWFE wants to purchase WCW and Turner wants to sell. Negotiations became extremely serious in the week this was reported, but there were several potential deal breakers that needed to be reconciled. And I'll get to one of those a bit later on. So how did WWFE get into this position? Well, it is believed that Eric Bischoff fell out of favour with Turner officials. A number of reasons have been given. 
a lack of sufficient funds was an issue. Uh, Turner is determined to unload the money-losing WCW before, oh yes, that again, the AOL Time Warner merger finally takes place next month. They are determined to sell WCW as long as the buyer can effectively continue to run it effectively, continue, it says here, and provide them with highly rated programming. The confidence level is low among Turner officials that Bischoff can provide them with high ratings over the long run. The confidence level is high among Turner officials that Vince McMahon can turn the company around and provide highly rated programming for TNT and TBS. This story has the potential to be among the biggest of the last 10 or 20 years in the professional wrestling industry. Way to make an understatement. WWFE does not plan to purchase WCW and shut it down trying to say that with a straight face. In fact, if they don't purchase WCW within the next week or two, as this was written, it would be very possible Turner would shut down the company on its own unless another serious buyer came to the forefront. This is fascinating, this paragraph. The working plan is for the WWF to operate WCW as a separate promotion, keeping the basic on-air look and talent list intact. They simply will provide an infrastructure that they believe can turn WCW around. The goal is to create the mainstream perception that the two companies are in fact two competing promotions. Vince McMahon believes there is room in the US for two well-run promotions to be profitable. He wants to reap the profits from both promotions. Again, understatement. WWF's purchase of the company would not likely be blocked due to monopoly concerns by the government as long as they didn't create barriers for new competitors to enter the marketplace. The issue of WCW contracts is an interesting one and one of the moments where we just need to try to rein ourselves back a little. The Federation could not afford to absorb the seven-figure and high six-figure guarantees, no incentive contracts, that WCW currently have for most of their top stars. Having those wrestlers technically working for the Federation would disrupt the pay balance that exists amongst the WWF wrestlers as they stand. To have wrestlers on incentive-based contracts with downside guarantees, while WCW wrestlers are getting paid guaranteed money without any immediate tangible incentives would likely create problems. It is highly likely Turner would have to buy out several top-name contracts before the Federation would agree to buy the company, and that could also scupper a potential deal. McMahon would have hands-on involvement with WCW at first and instill into WCW key WWF elements. I'll leave that one hanging in the air. But there is no plan to completely reshuffle the roster on air or on air talent or overhaul the look of the shows other than drastically upgrade the production values and sophistication of the programs. The deal was far from done at this point, but negotiations were very real. The WWF were preparing for all of this to happen. And as Wade Keller puts it again, (laughs) just a quick few words just to get up to the word count. If it happens, it will dramatically change the landscape of the industry. Well, you don't say. Now, Viacom, who, of course, are now putting out Raw every single week and have been for the last month and a bit, not entirely happy with the fact that Vince might be splitting his resources and creative energies. Just weeks after gaining rights to WWF programs, a key source told the PW Torch again that Viacom did indeed step forward in opposition to the negotiations with Turner to buy WCW. They bought exclusive rights to WWFE wrestling programs on cable. Viacom came out strongly against WWFE and Vince McMahon signing a deal with Turner, who remains a fierce Viacom rival. Some sources are still saying this isn't the potential problem it could be, but in the interest of fairness and the fact that no deal has been done, it's quite right we draw attention to it here. Anyway, 
Now I'll let the fun begin because that is what we're here for. Daniel, I will come to you first. Over the last few years, we've all been thinking about potential dream interpromotional matchups. Sting versus Undertaker, Steve Austin versus Goldberg, Jerry Flynn versus anybody, if you're Pete Kimber. But now, maybe, just maybe, we don't need to do these with action figures any longer. What are your thoughts on this potential groundbreaking move? Cool, yeah. I mean, how, how, how bizarre is this? I mean, you mentioned dream matches and stuff. It's things we've, as you say, talked about for, for so long, but never sort of rethought it would be a, a thing that could even happen because, yes, like WCW has been sort of business-wise not doing its best and we've heard about them being sold or something like that, but to, have, but to then have Vince and the WWF come in as potential buyers never really enters sort of my headspace. And yeah, it, it's crazy to think what what we could see sort of as soon as what maybe start of next year or something like that. Or then, yeah, crazy. But no, I, I do see the sort of side though from like Viacom and stuff, the TV companies, because will Vince be then spreading his sort of creativity and all that stuff too thin? I mean, will it ultimately be the detriment of both? companies to have everything sort of run by one person who knows but for the time being yes dream matches galore potentially very very exciting but weird times on the last couple of shows we've mentioned little more than in dispatches that the wwf were supposedly interested but the weekly reports in the sheets barely gave it any attention i thought it was just i'll be honest with you both main sheet writers just flying kites and yes. now it seems that was a lot more to it than that yeah it Eric, did seem, it did seem fanciful but, but, yeah it, it did it did seem sort of fanciful and uh, just a like a headline grabber but no clearly there was something to it but yeah negotiations are still ongoing apparently uh, i should say there are reports that in the initial negotiations vince mcmahon was and i quote brash and authoritarian during them well wonders never cease do they not eric i still can't quite believe we're talking about this this is our third opportunity but people overuse the word surreal but when people are talking about possible time slots and the talent that will be coming over i mean regardless of the major caveat that was reported this week and we have to put that on record is this really happening well, a lot needs to happen before it does, but it sure seems likely. Uh, those contracts, uh, did we talk about last month how there was a statistic that I read, and I can't remember if we put it on the show last month or I read it after, where at a certain point there was a threshold recently where WCW's talent contracts were something like 60 or 70% of its overall revenue. And if you compare that to a a sports franchise, which is kind of what WCW has always been uh, compared to. Uh, those typically run at about 25% of uh, salary uh, versus overall uh, everything. So WCW basically has two to three times as much uh, salary that it's paying its talent versus what a sports franchise would. So anyway, um, work all that out and sure that that's going to be great. Um, where we talked about, uh, a couple of months ago, um, there have been some indications as to well, why why do they even why is WWF even in this mix? 
And like if you're WCW, if you're Turner, you don't have to sell the WWF. You can sell to anybody you want to. And so is the WWF going to make the best offer? Well, that's one question. But it turns out, <laughs> Rory, that uh, it has now come to light that the WWF put a clause in the recently settled intellectual property lawsuit that it has the right of first refusal to purchase WCW under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So the result of the uh, Hall and Nash intellectual property settlement uh, may entitle WWF to the right of first refusal to purchase WCW, meaning they can match any offer that's on the table. Um, So here we are. And I really am optimistic like Dan is about the possibility of keeping these two brands separate and uh, commingling them when appropriate. Uh, One of the reasons why I think is because there's, there's, what well, help me out here. I think there's three or four possibilities as the way they can do this in my head. So the first one is WWF just absorbs all the WCW guys in, in, into WWF banner programming um, spread out over multiple networks. Um, two, there is, there's some sort of NWO style invasion angle, but they can't do that because it was just done a couple years ago very famously, and I don't think they tried to reinvent the wheel that soon. And three, I think they have to keep them on separate networks as separate uh, companies for a while because I think you have to build up WCW back to any level of glory in order for these guys to matter to a WWF audience. So, like, we talked about before, all these guys jumping back and forth, but, like, does it matter at this point if Nash were to go to the WWF for WCW? No. And would the WWF crowd, like, be meaningfully impacted or would their programming change if Nash was there? No, I don't think so. I don't think it could be much popular you know nash or somebody like that isn't going to pull an audience so take this time to reinvent wcw to make stars equivalent to then come over and battle rock and austin and undertaker and stuff so yeah if this works and they do they pull it off it's going to be great there's just a a lot of red tape and that's concerning but certainly better than a a bischoff startup or uh, anything like that absolutely yeah, before we carry on overexciting ourselves, I should say what the situation was with Mandalay Sports, because it seemed like they were the front runners, at least as far as we knew, for the last two or three months. I've actually called them an Eric Bischoff vehicle. That's slightly erroneous. He has a stake in the company, but he's certainly not not at the head of it. He is probably the most popular name, and I include Jason Hervey because he's popular with many yeah. people these days we're not talking <laughs> not going to mention missy hyatt on these shows more than we have to so yeah eric bischoff well let's call him the figurehead to be polite there was yeah, some the, the face of the company yeah yeah it's cool and i think he would have been probably creatively that might give some people the willies but i think that would have happened there was a lot of talk among the boys that the deal with mandalay sports was going to be struck as soon as the middle of this month the roster have been on a tour to Australia, more on that a little bit later on. A lot of discussion taking place that the deal with Mandalay Sports would have been signed, sealed, delivered whilst they were on the other side of the world. Of course, that didn't happen. On October the 13th, Mandalay Sports released a statement saying that they were never really interested in buying the company in the first place. Where does this leave Bishop? It is stated that Bishop might try and get the funding elsewhere, but that is very specious at the moment. Nobody else knows where that is going to come from if he can't latch it on to another company. He certainly is not in a position to do it off his own steam. Maybe Mandalay Sports, perhaps they're bluffing, but we can only go on what we've been given. I don't know how true or not that is. 
I think some people maybe in World Championship Wrestling might be hoping that it is Bischoff and Co. who can come to the rescue. Do the likes of Nash, Steiner even, stuff has to, just, just throw a dart into the WCW roster. They're eight or ten biggest names. Luger, even, Goldberg, DDP. <laughs> precisely. Even before you get to the contracts issue that I talked about there, who actually owns the contracts, they might need to be bought out first. WWF wouldn't necessarily subsume them the very second the ink dries on the buyout contract, or even leaving all of that stuff to one side for a second. And of course, it is tremendously important. I think one thing we do need to look at here before we let ourselves get too carried away, if we haven't already, is how much of the roster would really end up being, end up working for Vincent Kennedy McMahon. It's better than the unemployment line. There might be one or two people out there who would disagree with that, but I'm still going to put my neck on the chopping block and say, you know, rock and roll rather than doll and all of that. Uh, Eric, you put forward there the possible suggestions of how they would handle the rosters going forward. And I think there's a lot of credence to that, but you are already gaining eight or 10, at least planet sized egos. They're going to be jostling for space and that's putting it very kindly. Well, if you subscribe to the Vince McMahon theory, the, that will be heavily mitigated by the termination of these guaranteed contracts and then being put on more traditional WWF contracts, which are definitely pay for play. Um, so that I guess that would be Vince McMahon's argument. I, I also just think that, like, you know, they're I don't know. Are they interested in, like, continuing to ride these older guys that are notoriously headaches? Or are we going to see a real push for a younger batch of stars, which is going to carry this potential like it was described as like a major league baseball, American League, National League uh structure forward uh i think by the time that this becomes even something of it you know two equivalent uh programs uh, those guys are going to be you know nearing the end of their career so you know will they kind of just quietly agree to step aside as well now that vince mcmahon's got him on there's just so much to be seen or it's it's like like you said it's like trying to figure this out with all these egos but like Theoretically, that's how the WWF has mitigated this in the in the past. So that might work here, but who knows? These guys, <laughs> a lot of these guys, your Lugers, your BDPs, your Nashes, your Halls have have uh, they've just been like a, a they've chewed up and spit out a lot of guys that are really really smart and really really good in business over the last five years, and I think that's the only way I can put it. Dan, given all those names that Eric has mentioned there, how would you, how do you, okay, how do you think it should be handled if WCW came in? Should they be treated as an immediate threat to the WWF roster? Should they be treated as equals with their own show? Would you do some sort of NWO style invasion? I say that's been done once. I don't think that's lightning you can try and capture in a bottle again. I mean, then you're looking at things way way down the list like the mini ecw invasion in early 97 i would definitely treat wcw like that should they be kept entirely separate from the wwf roster and just exist as two separate entities only coming together as has been talked about as a possible for the big pay-per-views 
How how do you think it? I know how Vince McMahon will probably want to do it. <laughs> how do you think it should be done? I think you have to keep them separate. It's kind of like a, an oil and water thing. They're two very sort of separate. Uh, yes, they're both obviously wrestling companies with with wrestlers on rosters and all that, but they're very very different sort of beasts, and you have, you have to sort of keep them separate. Because looking at the other side of the coin, we were talking about oh, um, what the WWE wrestlers going to be doing and their contract stuff. Just have a thought about the sort of mid card and sort of lower in the WWF. They must be uh, reading this. They're probably sort of thinking, well, are all these sort of names from WWE going to come in and take our spots or potential spots like? those at the lower end of uh, WDF who are looking maybe to, to rise up through the rankings and then sort of get a push sort of down the line, that's that would probably be quashed if all of a sudden you've got another 30-plus people coming in. So, um, I, yeah, I think you have to sort of keep it keep it separate. And then you'd have the crossovers of the, the bigger names at the top of the card maybe um, mixing mixing with one another. But, but just to allow the younger... Um, sort of less utilised talent a chance to survive on both sides you'd have to have separate shows for them to flourish in and then once they're sort of big and good enough on Raw slash Nitro or however they want to put it on then you can have them ascend and then mix it up with the, the main eventers from the from either show um, yeah I can't as, as a potentially like an NWO type angle what, so you'd have the the WWE as a whole entity sort of invading WWF. That would just mix things up a bit too much for me, I think, because then you'd have, I, I don't know how you'd sort of play it, but I guess WWF are seen as all intents and all faces by de facto, and then WWF all heels. But then wrestling fans, we all know that there's heels and faces on both sides. So then you have some sort of weird... Mismatch of stuff where, I mean, just looking at like the cards uh, from having what Scott Steiner and Booker T on the same side facing off against, I don't know, Kurt Angle and The Rock on one side. That would just be very sort of mixed messages, and then you're sort of abandoning several months or whatever of building people up as certified baby faces and heels just to make them all blanket one or the other. So yeah, I think you'd have to keep it separate for now, and then maybe down the line, slowly merge it together. It'd have to be a long-term transition rather than a put all the talent in one pot and mix it up. I don't think that would work. Oh, I completely agree with you. In the summer of 1989, after Dusty Rhodes had completed his menial tasks tour and checked if the dinger was dinging and the ringer was ringing and all of that, beating prices, etc., etc. When he first walked into the WWF locker room, uh, Somebody turned to somebody and said, I came here to get away from that asshole. Unreported. I, I, I'm going to put it on record who I think it was. I think it was Ronnie Garvin. There you go. That's <laughs> one of the greatest <laughs> mysteries in the industry finally uncovered. There you go. The timeline fits. So if it was the rugged one who said it. That is just one example of what we're going to get in the WWF locker room here. Multiplied many, many times. I'm sure there are many people in both organisations who are friendly with each other, no doubt about it. I hope they are. But when people see Big Sexy striding back in purposely, slowly into the dressing room, if you do see Big Papa Pont there, and he looks at you, if you know what I mean, and I'm, I'm going to say it, even if things get ironed out with old Terry Boy, and especially then, are the likes of 
I'm going to leave Austin and Rock, maybe Triple H, out of this equation for now, because I think they will be given the help to keep their heads above water. But people like Kurt Angle, sad to say, uh, Chris Jericho, I think is an excellent example. A lot of the other people have already come over, Benoit, Guerrero, etc. They're just going to think, oh, here we go again. That's just when it all looked, everything was, we're finally seeing everything in colour. There we go, Biff on the head, stars around it, all just monochrome. The stars around it in the most literal sense. If anybody is going to be able to stand up to these people, and if Bell needs standing up to, then Vince McMahon is the man to do it. It's just a case of whether he takes WCW serious enough in order to do it. You don't want to outright bury all these guys. <laughs> okay, Vince McMahon probably does want to outright bury all these guys, but you've got to make them competitive, be they outright against your current roster or in show versus show competition. But to do that, the current guys you've got who've been very good soldiers for you over the last three years, who've turned things around inexorably and making you the number one leader in the industry, you want to keep them with you as well. Eric, this has been dreamland for the last half hour. I need to click my fingers and bring us back into reality here. Well, sort of. Is this really going to happen? I don't know. Uh, here's the thing. Just to bring this home on the, just to, to wrap it around, as they say, uh, on the on the talent management aspect of this, the other thing to consider is if Vince McMahon buys WCW, then there's ostensibly nowhere else for any of these guys to go to make anything close to what they could potentially make as wrestlers in the U.S. Uh, ECW looks to be on the ropes, too. Let's not talk about that potential glut of talent flooding the marketplace uh, as well alongside this WCW issue. Uh, So if it comes down to two and a half viable companies for guys to come and work and, and make uh, you know, a living wage doing professional wrestling, if that shrinks down to one or one company in a very, very stripped down version of ECW, um, that might incentivize some of these guys to uh, behave a little bit. There won't be any pay window to go, as Dusty would to go to, as Dusty would say. Um, will this happen? I, I don't know. The idea of Vince McMahon, like, reasonably advertising the WCW brand still seems really surreal. And I think there's an ego component there that we really just need to factor in as to if this could make Vince McMahon $10 billion, but he would have to admit that he didn't kill WCW. He relied on it. Would he take that bet? I don't know. So let's, let's just wait and see because we're not dealing with a guy who's just driven by money. He's not, he's not driven by anything, but his own weird warp sense of, of principle. So uh, let's factor that in too. But if he can overcome that, then yeah, I think we're on the precipice of, you know, something that's really, really interesting. I mean, there are still people out there, and I would probably count myself very much among them, who are still reeling from 16 years ago, Bob Cordell introducing Vince McMahon on a cheery Saturday night edition of Georgia Challenger Wrestling. Um, I didn't think we'd ever see anything quite like that ever again but it's possible and i do mean it's possible that we could be seeing it again multiplied many many times over Uh, dan to wrap this one same question to you is this really going to happen uh i don't i really don't know um my my sort of thinking is when i was sort of reading this 
is uh, is the question um, is Vince going to buy WCW? That I can give a I could probably give a simple potential yes to. What I mean by that is I think the thing he'll buy is the name and the history and like the libraries and stuff like the the properties. What yeah, the sticking point for me is like the the wrestlers and the contracts and all that stuff. I think he wants to have the library and stuff, so then he can market it, and that's where the I think that's where the money is for him. Whether or not that he does go with the full fledged plan of two rosters and all the talent and stuff, I really don't know. For now, um, it's that's too, that's too hard to see for, for for me at the time being, but. Is there a deal where he probably ends up buying some sort of part of WCW? Yes, possibly for that archive level, yes. You think he might just try and buy the archive and have done with it? Yeah. The yeah, I, TV I think... TV library, etc. I think he'll, I think he'll want the, the, like the footage and all things like that, so then they can release... like best ofs and all this and like all the other things that you can get out of it in terms of yeah having all the footage for so like someone like steve austin they could have you could do a best of steve austin that covers his career from 90 when he was in wc all the way through to to now rather than just it starting in january 96 so there's i think there's there's money there in te- the yeah the rest of the, the talent side sort of is is that sticking point that you mentioned sort of at the, at the start here. Will he want to invest in talent who he, he a doesn't really know b does or has worked with and doesn't want and has no reason to work with again? Who's to say? And then yeah you mentioned there's no other sort of places for them to go. Maybe the resulting factor is that those who Vince doesn't pick up or whatever try to make something themselves happen down the down the line who knows but yeah i think i think the the best part of the money for vince will, will be in the in the top owning things like the name wcw and possibly owning like pay-per-view names and stuff who knows two questions that remain here for now before we wrap because we're going to be coming back to this one i fancy two key questions number one is the most important one of all did nobody consider how we're going to handle this on the podcast going forward? <laughs> we could be down to one show a month. Well, obviously, Lacey's got you know, the land of extreme settled. I, I, I wouldn't dare trot on his toes. But just think of the debates and discussions and fierce arguments and potentially even I'm going to go there, even virtual, <laughs> virtual bloodshed that will be people falling over themselves to get onto the shows. No, this, <laughs> the happy medium we managed to walk here and have for seven years is... Uh, going to be severely traversed if this goes ahead so at least somebody won't somebody think of the podcast there's something that needs to happen we're very very important you know literally tens of people in your audience are going to be affected here all right all right we you 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 missed the meeting pal we we got we got it they don't need to be upset we got it (laughs) i'm always too ahead of the game that's the problem and question number two is probably maybe a slightly more pressing one if i'm being fair and did Vince McMahon think this day, if it has come, would ever come? wonder if even he, in his wildest dreams, not that I really want to psychoanalyze what his wildest dreams might be, consider. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
that already says more than I'd ever want to, would actually could purchase his competition. And not just any competition, the competition who came inches away, almost in a literal sense, from putting him out of business not even three years ago. Uh, their sense of schadenfreude would be off the scale. And it's almost too perfect that it would be Vince McMahon left holding the spoils at the end of this and North American professional wrestling, but that's what it will be. Sorry, Vince in his hands after all for decades, the McMahon family would tell you that it was in their hands all along. Not true. It actually could be. We are standing on the precipice of something incalculable. Just think that possibly just possibly it could be happening and we will be here to report it to you if it does. Oh, Deep breath. Somebody who will not <laughs> safely should not be making the journey across, should there be one, is this fellow. Last week on Nitro, I proved to the entire world that at any given time, I could become the WCW champion. Is that boring? Now, the fact of the matter is that I am not an athlete, nor did I ever claim to be. As a matter of fact, there are many that say Vince Russo has no business being in the ring. And you know what? Maybe they're right. So tonight, being the man that I am, I am going to relinquish my WCW title. Liz! No! No, don't do that, Mr. Russo! And tonight, there will be a title match between the two top contenders to crown a new WCW world champion. And those top two contenders will be the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett. Of course. And? And Big Papa Pump, Scott Stein. Oh, my God. Back-scratching festival, that is. As far as Bill Goldberg is concerned, Goldberg proved to the entire world What a coward he was last week. Yes, he did. Absolutely. After I get beaten down for 30 minutes inside a steel cage, Goldberg walks in and takes advantage of an innocent, fallen, helpless victim. But he hit you. Goldberg is lucky I didn't file charges against him for assault. That's right. But I'm not that kind of a guy. No, he's not. The fact is, Goldberg, you can learn something from Vince Russo. We all can. You can learn how to be a man. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what, if I weren't a man, and if I weren't above you, I would have kicked your sorry ass myself. Yes, the October 2nd Nitro was Vince Russo's final full Nitro in creative charge. He did send scripts to the talents for the aforementioned Australian tour that took place over the next two weeks, but those ended up being heavily amended anyway. He did not make the trip. Now he has officially gone. And in my position as an impartial, unbiased, objective broadcast journalist, there is next to no chance of me playing any celebratory music under this read. Next to no chance. 
Part of Russo's recent frustration came from Brad Siegel, him again, continually telling him he wanted a greater stress on wrestling content. I thought this might come back. Russo argued that wasn't what he was brought in to do. He was brought in to write an entertainment show that happened to have some wrestling as part of it. WCW front office staffers roll their eyes at Russo's stubborn unwillingness to acknowledge that the political landscape has changed, and not only is his Crash TV format no longer drawing ratings based on shock value alone, but advertisers are fleeing any raunchy programming. Russo's inability to adjust to changing times has doomed him in the eyes of management. He went out in style on the October 2nd Nitro, I can't deny that, where he lined up a tag team match between, I want to make sure I even got this right, correct me if I'm wrong gents, I probably am, I'll watch the thing, Jarrett and Booker T teaming up to face Steiner and Sting, both very natural partners those two of course, I have got that right haven't I? That is correct, yeah. Wow, <laughs> easily have got that wrong, in which the winning team went on to face each other for the vacant. WCW title. Russo dropped the title. I spent far too long trying to semi-rationalise his win last month. I'm not going to talk about him dropping it this time. In a match on Nitro. But of course, do you really think you're going to get a straight up decent 10 minute TV main event between Jarrett and Booker? Not while this guy was still in charge. We had a San Francisco 49ers match, I think it was called, in which there were four boxes held above the four turnbuckles, each containing supposedly near-lethal weapons. Uh, the die was cast in the first 90 seconds of the match, where when Jeff Jarrett was whipped into the turnbuckle, one of the boxes actually fell down. That's not as bad as things would get. Let me just quickly run through those devastating articles that were found in the boxes. They were, respectively, uh, what Del Boy would call either polythene Pam or Vinyl Vera, use your imaginations, a picture of Scott Hall, who was actually looking pretty good in the picture, so probably not a file photo. And, of course, a coal miner's glove. And, yes, I see what they did with that one. Eventually, we got to the world title belt. Booker was able to win it after Jeff himself was denied by Beetlejuice, giving him a couple of low blows. Seriously, just don't ask. Don't, if you don't know, you don't want to know, OK? And even then... The tragic comedy wasn't complete because when Booker went to get the belt out of the final box, the belt actually fell out of it and out of the ring. And as the rules dictated, the first person to get their hands on the belt became the champion. Technically speaking, Dave Penzer should be the world champion right now because he indeed gave it to Booker. I wouldn't have entirely put it past Mr. Russo to very quickly on the fly and now get Penza to announce himself as the world champion. Bet you he was thinking it. So Booker T became the world champion for the I've already lost count time. And that was it for Russo. What a way for him to go out. End as you mean to go on. Dan, I'll come to you first on the demise of Russo. He has been the ultimate bet noir of these <laughs> shows of the last year or so. We even developed whole concepts to him. In very literal yeah. senses, but oh, maybe it's maybe I'm you know maybe I'm getting a bit soft in my old age. Maybe I've been doing this a bit long. But is it fair to have just the merest modicum, infinitesimal bit of sympathy for him, on the grounds that what he tried to do, what he wanted to do, i.e., very little to do with professional wrestling? On his own, this time, he simply wasn't able to do. 
get to that, then bury him as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got to try to be fair, everybody. Broadcast journalism. I I guess you yeah I there is that sort of small argument that you could uh, yeah small argument that he was sort of just unable to do what he wanted to do because of the circumstances he was in. But blimey, he didn't make it easy on himself, did he? Jeez, just looking at this last night show alone, the the world title picture changed sort of every half an hour from it being Russo's got the belt to, okay, then it's going to be Jarrett versus Steiner for the belt. And then, no, the cap changed it to Booker versus Sting for that. And then it got comp- then sort of a, a compromise being the tag match. But then that was the qualifier for the world title and then we got the world title and then even that match was well, basically a on the pole match wasn't it really for lack of a better term geez so yeah as much as yeah and i i, I see your point as a yeah russo kind of there should be some sort of small modicum of sympathy for him but yeah he really really sort of makes the case against him much easier to talk about than the case for him <laughs> i i, I... No, I do want to bury him. I, so I don't want to <laughs> it's just in a couple of months' time, when the end-of-year awards roll round, I think it's already been settled that I'm going to dedicate plenty of time to ensuring that Russo picks up the awards in which he is very much in the front line and centre to pick up. I'm sure Mr Lacey would not forgive me if I didn't present him with the opportunity to do so. So maybe sit tight for a couple of months until we really turn the screw for the final time. But Eric, I know you've got some numbers you want to crunch for us on this one as well, so go ahead and do that. But also, just generally, was this ever going to work? Well, let's let's take those... Out of order, um, just for some context. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think it was ever <laughs> well, going to work. Um, uh, so uh, we know uh, that, and this, this, gosh, this kind of circles to the WCW thing at large too, because like, is Vince McMahon going to allow someone else to write television with his copyright on it? So that's what's never happened in the history of the WWF since 1981 or two when Vince McMahon bought it. He's booked everything that shows up on television in one way or another, or at least has told Pat Patterson what he wants. So anyway, my point is nothing that aired on the WWF television that Vince Russo ostensibly got credit or took credit for uh, was ever anything that wasn't heavily filtered by Vince McMahon. So absent that filter and some of the things that we now know were censored uh, by WCW and by the Turner higher ups, it was just more of the stuff that made this almost impossible to watch as it was. So, no, I never thought this would work. Um, I, I was immediately uh, correct in that. And then he had three. He was basically hired and fired, I don't know, up, <laughs> upwards of four times over the course of his tenure, officially or unofficially. So, um, no, I never thought this was going to work. Uh, I thought it was a desperate move by WCW when it happened, and I thought it was an extra desperate move when they brought him back in March. So let me settle in here, Rory, and I will run through some facts and figures that get us through Russo's tenure in WCW. Go for it. So, so we haven't done the ratings in a while because it's been a while since WCW was even close. The ratings have certainly been important to the, the, the comparisons of the company and, frankly, why WCW felt like it was necessary to bring Russo in 
in the first place. So let's see what happens. So Russo had three separate eras kind of over his WCW tenure, uh, basically October 99 to January 2000. And then the Bischoff regime was only about nine weeks between April and June of 2000. And then post-Bash at the Beach when Russo came back, June to basically now, October the 2nd, which is going to be the last Nitro Russo gets credit for. So for that first era, October 99 to January 2000, Nitro averaged a 3.21 rating, 13 episodes, and it was a slight decrease over the prior 13 shows. Uh, Thunder, if we care, averaged a 2.25, which was an increase from the prior shows by just a tenth of a ratings point. And Russo's pay-per-views were up by one by two tenths of a ratings point over three events. So then Russo went home, and he came back in April with uh, Eric Bischoff. Nitro averaged a 2.9 rating, which was an increase from the prior 10 episodes by a meaningful margin. And Thunder went up uh, quite a bit as well um, by four-tenths of a ratings point. Uh, and pay-per-views, uh, pay-per-views, though, fell by an average of 0.2. So just to put this in perspective, how precipitous WCW's fall has been, pay-per-views averaged a 0.41 uh, or a 0.43 during Russo's first tenure. They were down to a 0.2, uh, the 0.19 um, to a 0.2 for his second uh, two. So they, they went down by half. Um, and then... His last era after Bischoff went home, Nitro went down significantly, except for the two shows that ran unopposed. Thunder went down considerably, and pay-per-views dropped to a .17. So uh, basically, to summarize, his tenure made no impact on Nitro's television ratings. Pay-per-view buy rates declined significantly. Uh, Year-to-year house show attendance fell from about 4,600 to 1,700. And the world title changed hands 20 times. 20 times. I mean, just, and that's in the the year he was at the helm, allowing for yes. his brief absences. If you want to look at three under, or four under, stints. Yeah. Yep. And that, that 20 times doesn't encompass other changes which would have happened outside oh, of his three tenures. That is extraordinary. It's... <laughs> The he's got form as long as your arm, as the saying goes. I mean, just those numbers don't lie. Even before you br- even try to bring opinion into it, you know, the raw numbers there, pun very much intended. There you go. There's no lying with a point. Was it like point one nine buy rates for pay per views? Because I'll be yeah. honest, I've been yeah, paying just gonna... barely any attention to the numbers over the last few months because as close to irrelevant as you'll get, and there you are. Yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna uh, bring that back up because I think it's the most stark comparison. So when Russo came, his first uh, batch of pay-per-views starting in October '99 averaged a 0.43 buy rate, and over his last tenure, culminating in October just now, uh, this doesn't account for Halloween Havoc, which is probably fortunate to his uh, overall statistics. So through Fall Brawl, down to a 0.17. So uh, basically. By by casual math, a third uh, down or a, a third of his initial uh, runs average by rate. Point one seven. There you are. It's now, now I now I actually do feel like I'm kicking him when he's down. 
good, I'm going to carry on doing it. Um, no, not too hard. Maybe not with steel toe caps anyway. Uh, Eric, that's some sterling work there and throws everything into very sharp relief. Uh, that is what we are dealing with at this point. And indisputable, I think, for a person who, as he told us on multiple occasions, off and most importantly of all, on screen, that he was all about getting ratings, didn't even come close. Maybe there was the occasional rubbernecking bounce when he first came in and the ill-fated reset in April 2000 that I feel we will probably be talking about again in a couple of months or so. Other than that, it just hasn't been there. And as I think that right up in the torch reporting front office staff is there at WCW, his, for somebody who has received or did receive three two to three years ago a lot of credit for dragging pro wrestling from the kiddie pool that it was in in the mid 90s certainly as far as the federation is concerned and employing adult orientated content attitude era and all of that helped turn the business around all of that stuff needs to be mentioned and that will be on his cv for many years to come and so it should be we now know we might have doubted how much of it was his own work before but now we 100% know that he had another Vince patting him on the shoulder and crossing a few things out when his trusty red pen here and there didn't have that over the last year he had full creative control unless you count the yes man that was Ed Ferrara and we all know what he ended up doing in one of one of the dear of the dears that Russo gave us towards the end of 1999 if you put all of that together and so many other things that were all too close to it as well. I do think Oklahoma was the lowest of the low, but it was far from an isolated incident. The emperor is wearing no clothes, I'm afraid, and he has been well and truly found out. I do now, looking back on it, the Bash at the Beach promo, which we all tore to absolute promo, lament really, that we all tore to absolute shreds on the programme three months ago. I look at it now and I think that was almost a, an apologia from him when he's saying that he has a wife, three kids, and he really doesn't need this shit. I do think that was actually true. Not that he really should have been airing his dirty linen in public on a pro wrestling pay-per-view, far from it. But I do think there he believed what he was saying and all the attempts to come back after that, he was always going to be on a hiding to nothing. And I think this is best, certainly for him. I just think he needs to stay well away from pro wrestling for a very long time now. It's clearly where pro wrestling is. It's not cut out for him. I mean, just look uh, for the sake of argument. It's not going to happen. But if he did switch back to the Federation, say, when we're recording this. Now, how would he handle people like, again, to mention them, Angle, Jericho, Triple H? Now, he couldn't recapture the same he did with Austin two years ago this time. The Rock... I think would end up being emasculated. So he's not going back to the Federation. He would be all of us. He'd be so shown up there. It's not even funny. ECW, forget it. Now, if he wants to try to work in a specific form of entertainment, which it sounds like he has always wanted to, then that is what he should dedicate himself to. Take six months off, spend some time with your family, just chill your boots, man. And maybe middle of 2001, he could start working in, uh, other for other forms of scripted entertainment that really he should be doing anyway. I don't 
want to be that guy and say he just got lucky with his work in the Federation, especially because I don't think that is true. He saw what needed to happen, but that's because he was riding the zeitgeist, because you knew that word was coming, of where entertainment and society were going in the mid-late 90s. Not necessarily, or at least fully, professional wrestling. Now, where wrestling itself is starting to come to the fore again, and storylines are a lot tighter, a lot more meaningful, given a lot more time to develop over the weeks and months, as we've seen up north specifically, then now he's starting to look like yesterday's man. And that descent has both been sharp and slow. It's happened almost every week over the last year, but at the same time, it's also happened just like that. Bizarre how that has turned out to be the case, but it really has. And it's best for him and all other parties concerned that we don't talk about him on these shows anymore either. Although we will get one last hurrah, I fancy, in two months' time on the end of show awards, as I've already mentioned. But everybody concerned, this needs to be the last we talk about Vince Russo for the time being. I wanted it to be the last time we talk about Vince Russo for many, many months. But now, like I suggested a few minutes ago, I'm just a little sad about it. Because, you know, there is a human cost here as well that we would do well to remember. There is one more big news story we need to discuss and it involves this guy. Bret Hart, welcome to Nitro. Welcome to Nitro. Took a long time to get here. Yes, as you've heard, it did indeed take him a long time to get there, but an extremely short time for him to be got out of there. For WCW terminated Bret Hart's contract this month due to his extended inability to wrestle. His contract is worded in such a way as to allow him to be released after being out of work for a certain period of time. He has, of course, appeared on camera many times in the last two months alone. But hey, his contract had already been sliced in half from the original three million dollars we spoke about at such length three years ago. And given his own long running disenchantment with his position in the company, it is probably fair to say the writing has been on the wall. Here is Brett agent Bruce Allen. It's not outside the realm of possibility that the timing of Brett's firing had something to do with the WWF buying WCW. Hart would almost certainly not work for McMahon again. Really? There's ECW, but you'll never see Brett Hart wrestle again. That was a funny sentence. Brett is done. And here is the man himself in his Calgary Sun column, where you know he's going to get rip. Guess what? I got fired yesterday. Surely that should have been, well, you know, I got fired. It's not the first time I've been fired, and I think it happens to everybody at some time or another. So this morning, the FedEx guy shows up with a letter from WCW. Surely that should be DWCW. And it reads as follows, as quoted by Brett. Based on your ongoing incapacity, post-concussion syndrome, WCW is exercising its right under paragraph 8E to terminate your independent contractor agreement, effective Friday, October the 20th, 2000. Your contributions to the wrestling business are highly regarded, and we wish you only the best in the future. Yeah, right. Signs off the hit, man. Dan, I'll come to you first. It looked like Bret Hart's WCW career, and ergo his entire wrestling career, is ending in ignominy. Given the last three years alone, however, ignominy was pretty much the baseline. And I take no pleasure in saying that about a man like Bret Hart. But for his WCW career to end like this, it's really very fitting. 
It sadly is. I mean, I've I've been a, a Bret Hart fan for years, but yeah, the last what nearly three years now as we're approaching have just been just been almost empty, really. Um, his short runs as US champion in sort of ninety, and then the, the world title win uh, last year, a small and fleeting highlights, but but yeah, it's just been. It's just a, it is a really sort of sad way for a, a career to end on what's just been a sort of a long drawn out damp squib waiting to happen really this was, with these injuries and and whatnot it was all, it was only a matter of time when he got really some surprises actually taken this long for it to be enacted in all honesty considering how quick uh WWE have been in the past for releasing injured um wrestlers but um but yeah as far as we're concerned now, I mean, one, let alone his post-concussion syndrome and things like that, where else, where else could he go to, to wrestle, really? And so, yeah, I think, sadly, we may have seen the last, at least in ring, for, for Brett for, for now, um, whether he comes back somewhere else or well, wherever else is there to go. But, I mean, what do we... Yeah, I can't really see any any sort of future with with Bret Hart in at the moment, which is incredibly sad for me to say. That's a really sort of depressing sentence, but but I guess we just have to sort of almost try to edit out most of the past couple of years and just remember the good times, I guess, and just hope he's sort of doing well with this post concussion syndrome and, and all other sort of percentual injuries that he's he's had, and is at least sort of doing okay and can have some sort of life outside of wrestling. Touched on some very important points there. Most importantly of all, that he is working with his post-concussion syndrome best he can. Still a lot of grey areas, re-concussions these days. Very few people really know a whole lot about them. So maybe Brett's been given a blessing in disguise here by the fact that he can't wrestle. But you touched on a very important point there. He as far as Bret Hart is concerned, about how important pro wrestling is to him. Um, I, I'll i get back to this again in a second, but I can't really see him doing anything else. Uh, we've talked about it many times on the shows. Bret Hart, his life is professional wrestling. It's ingrained in professional wrestling. It's how he was brought up. It's, final, it's almost certainly how he will finally leave this earth. Given everything we know about the Hart family, it's impossible for him to have been anything else. But he went with it and went with it to the ultimate extremes, sometimes to his own personal detriment, it must be said. And I put that on record as a monumentally huge Bret Hart fan. We've had more than our fair share on the podcast over the last seven years. And I count myself right up there in the top echelon. But when a man needs to be criticised for how he really treats this stuff, I do think he needs to be. But with all of that said, Eric as much as we could see this happening due to how his WCW career did pan out over the last three years, this is still Bret Hart we're talking about. It shouldn't have ended this way. Well, you can say that about a lot of athletes. And I think that's a little bit of the reality here is that, you know, wrestlers aren't athletes in the football players and basketball players and, and, and uh, soccer players are. Uh, but, um, they are athletes in that they have career arcs 
And this is an arc that you see throughout sports where you have this guy and he's like this big star. And then at, he's, he knows he's getting towards the end of his career and he takes that last big contract, maybe he moves to another team. And then that last contract just proves to be a mistake for everybody because people decline rapidly and injuries happen spontaneously. And, and we see this happen, you know, a lot with athletes near the tail end of their career. Um, and Bret Hart has definitely followed that trajectory and it's too bad because it sucks to watch in sports and it definitely sucks when it's Bret Hart. Um, and I think the head trauma point you made is, is very, very uh, relevant. And I think it's something that if I were Bret Hart and I see somebody like Muhammad Ali and I see some of these other, the, 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 the physical and cognitive well-being of some of these older athletes who have taken head trauma throughout their careers have had concussions and just how they, how they are later in life or they aren't later in life because they can't function. And I hope he takes this, like you said, as a blessing, if it's something that he can't recover from, or if it's going to have this like cumulative effect. Uh, and you wonder, you wonder that cumulative effect. You wonder if that's not the reason why this happened in the first place. If this was Bret Hart's first concussion, maybe he would be back by now, but it's most certainly not. Um, and maybe that's why this kick from Goldberg was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, you know? Um, so yeah, I think if this is a situation where it's going to cause him permanent brain damage, then he needs to step away and he needs to be responsible. You know, wrestling might be his life, but it's not the only thing in his life. And you see what happens when athletes don't take that seriously. Um, but yeah, uh, he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. He is probably the greatest technical wrestler of the modern era. Um, Maybe Rick then him. You can give Rick the 80s and Brett the 90s. I think that's fair. Um, and he's just had uh, so many good matches that it's hard to even reflect on them. And so many matches that you don't even think about and you don't even remember being great until be just because of the cache of great matches that he's had. And so he gets a lot of uh, criticism for his you know late 94 to 95 WWF run, but in that he had great matches against guys like Hakushi, John Pierre Lafitte. Uh, he had another good Lawler match in there, I think. You know, they're, they're peppered in there, and that culminated with that tremendous match against Nash at the Survivor Series. So even Brett's down years uh, over his, you know, 90s run, where I do think he was probably the best technical athlete uh, of that period, are, are stellar. And he even had an opportunity to show that a little bit in WCW with Flair again and with Benoit. And there's other ones in there, too, I'm sure I'm forgetting. But, you know, he is, his career ended as many athletes' careers do. And it's at this point where we can reflect on, you know, what he brought to the table when he was able to perform and hope that if he can't perform, that he recognizes that and moves on and finds something else. Yeah, let's not end this one on a downer indeed. Dan, just um, while we've got the opportunity to, just list some of your favorite Bret Hart moments and matches while you've got the opportunity to. I don't think there's going to be too many from WCW making your list, but let's talk about some great ones, whether they're the established ones or a couple that people might have missed. Just fill your boots. Now is our opportunity. If this is it for Bret's career, and whilst I might not like the way it's happened, I really do hope it is. Now, let us now begin looking back on the great man's career and, just give us some of your favourites. Let's let, let's go out on a high here. Yes, certainly. Uh, so um, I think a, a quick, easy one for especially uh, fans this side of the pond would be uh, his match against Bulldog at um, SummerSlam '92 at Wembley. But I would like to mention 
um the basically like the rematch in uh, december of 95 at the in your house when yes. you had the heel, yes. Yes. heel bulldog uh, against champion uh brett in a sort of bloody brutal quite brutal affair for the time for the time certainly sort of a, when it was WWE was sitting in the the new the sort of the uh, new generation pg sort of era far from it being what it is is now so I'd, I'd like to give that one a mention if no one's gone no one's watched that recently please do that's a really really good one that stands out for me that's not one that's on the top of everyone's list possibly um another one would be um again a lot of people would would favor probably his match with austin at 13 um i would say go and watch the survivors his 96 one it's a more technical affair i think than the than the i quit match one that stands out again for me there um to pick a wcw one i think a lot of people would pick the owen tribute against uh um benoit which i agree is a stellar match and i think one that i might have covered on this podcast when i first joined so again do watch that but um even that sort of first sort of feud with flair at the start of 98 was was somewhat decent i thought if i had to pick a wcw one and sort of finally another wwf match um perfect to get SummerSlam 91 for the Intercontinental title. His sort of coming of coming of, of age type match when he was sort of first really broke onto the the singles scene, winning that Intercontinental title for the first time. Another great match with a uh, very injured uh, Hennig at the time, but then but those two were magic together again. Um, uh, underrated version of of that is at King of the Ring 93. In there, I think this the semi final match uh, at that pay per view. You can watch that as well. I could I could carry on forever on listing Bret Hart matches. They're really good. I'd be I think I'll leave it there for now. So <laughs> I mean, maybe one day I'll post a, I'll post a list of more as they come to, to mind. But um, but for now, I think those are the ones that are at the forefront of my mind that I would happily... I may even go and watch again sometime soon. Just put them on your GeoCities page and we will find it, I promise you. Fire <laughs> exactly. up the 56k BBS to get through them. Just don't put any <laughs> pictures on there, though, because that's really going to slow it down badly. Just just reams of dot text <laughs> and you'll be fine. Text it is. You, 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 you'll, you'll get your hit counter up there, I promise you. Yeah, just, just to wrap up on Brett, um, because I've talked about him so many times over the last five years I've been on this show and glowing more often than I haven't been. I've had to defend him against a certain somebody who shall remain nameless. He knows who he is. He's not listening. He's already been mentioned. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll give him the oxygen of publicity. He's the reason we're here, so I can't be too mean. Anyway, it's often said about Brett that you guys have mentioned all the big matches there. I'm sure we've all seen them, but watched them again and again. Never get tired of them. Uh, it is a criticism that has been levied at Brett is that he has levels. He has his TV and pay-per-view level, which is right up there with if not the greatest of all time, as far as North America is concerned. And there's supposedly his house show Coliseum video level where he could often be seen to be just phoning it in. I very rarely have seen the latter of those. It might be because I'm not party to a lot of late 80s, early 90s house shows that simply weren't recorded. But on shows with far lesser importance. Now, Something like when he's facing Virgil or Kamala for something that ends up being taped for 
Smack and Wackham, for example, or Dino Bravo that ended up on World Tour 89-90. He's still bringing his very best there, in my opinion. And I think some of the slight criticism comes from the fact, and this isn't Brett's fault, that he was so often in there with people who were way below his level. I wonder if Brett will look back on his career, calls himself a 10 out of 10 wrestler, hard to argue, but I wonder if he will ever in future years look back and think, well, being in the WWF when I was in there with so many stiffs and monsters and head turners and airports that I didn't really have the opportunities to have the regular run of four and a half plus matches. Brett's role, especially as champion, it must be said, was getting good matches out of not good guys. Now, in 1994, we had two five-star matches on pay-per-view. Three, if you count the Bob Backlund one at Survivor Series, as I do. So we can't be too greedy. But you could dip into anything from Brett. If you fired up an old Coliseum video and saw him in there against Greg Valentine or somebody, or Ted DiBiase from Odessa, Texas in March 89 to pick something out of my head, you're going to get something good. You're going to get a story told. And I think now where in-ring pro wrestling in North America, again, it must be said, is of a very high standard in the WWF. Two things to wrap up here. One, it's easy to forget in-ring storytelling, doing stuff that is appropriate for the match, for the plot line you were trying to follow, start, middle and end. Brett was a master of that. And the fact that he never quite got the chance, or really did get the chance to wrestle people like, to mention it one more time, Angle, Jericho, Ben won more than a couple of times, et cetera, et cetera. But Brett left us with an ultimate in-ring legacy. And I've managed to get to all of us, all three of us have talked about Brett Hart without mentioning the bleep word from November 1997 once. So we need to give ourselves a pat on the back. Brett, much like Russo, it's the last time I'm ever going to compare Brett Hart and Russo. But mates, if you're listening, take the step back that you deserve. And we hope to see you in some sort of professional wrestling role again really, really soon. But it might not seem like it on occasions, especially even for us here on the podcast, but some things are more important than professional wrestling. Well, Bret Hart, you were born for this moment. You were born for this day. You know, Gene, I can't tell you right now how proud I am of this moment. This is the greatest moment of my whole life, and I dedicate this moment to all the people that believe that the biggest dreams can still come true. There was a pay-per-view this month uh, by the name of Halloween Havoc. You might have heard of it. And we are doing things a bit differently now on the WCW shows, as we have spent so much time talking about all the big news stories, as we felt it was quite right to do so. Trawling through, and it would be trawling through, every single pay-per-view match blow by blow, move by move, not going to be the most interesting listener experience. Most of these matches don't amount to a hill of beans, to coin a phrase, it must be said. But we are still going to talk about them. All of us have still watched it. So, Dan, do take us through the match-by-match results from Halloween Havoc, then I shall tell the good listeners how we will review the pay-per-view over the next few minutes. Oh, uh, so in the opening contest, uh, Natural Born Thrillers, Jin Dragon O'Hare defeated... uh, Kidman and Rey Mysterio and the Boogie Knights Disco and Astroy in a three-way dance for the World Tag Titles. Then Reno defeated Sergeant Awol for the Hardcore title. Uh, Misfits in Action, Lieutenant Loco and 
Corporal Cajun defeated the perfect event Stasek and Palumbo in a tag match. Next, in a mixed tag match, Conan and Tigress defeated Shane Douglas and Tory Wilson. Then Buff Bagwell defeated David Flair in a First Bloods DNA match. Then Mike Sanders defeated Ernest the Cat Miller in a kickboxing match. Then we've got Mike Awesome defeating Vampiro. And then for the United States title, General Erection defeated Lance Storm and Jim Duggan in a handicap match. Following that, Jeff Jarrett defeated Sting. And then in the world title match, Booker T defeated Scott Steiner by disqualification. And then finally, to close the show, Goldberg defeated Chronic, Adams and Clark. Congratulations for staying awake during that, Dan, most importantly of all. I will leave you to <laughs> grab, you, grab yourself a quick oval team before I come back to you. Eric, we will be talking about the final three matches there in the standard play-by-play review that, to which everybody has become so accustomed over the last seven years in a few minutes. But for now, so switch what is normally my opening question before the pay-per-view. Uh, just give me a roundup of your thoughts of the first two hours of it, such that they might be any special highlights, such that they might be, and any special criticisms, such that they will be. Yeah, I just, you know, we may not touch on every match, but uh, I think I have some positives and some negatives. So here we go. Uh, <laughs> bad bad first note here. Uh, the opening three-way dance was uh, kind of a sloppy spot fest. Uh, with unlistenable Conan commentary and no selling. Um, but I think it was only 10 minutes long. Uh, and then WCW Hardcore match was exactly what you'd expect. Uh, MIA versus the Perfect Event continues to expose that the Perfect Event are green as grass, which fortunately here, uh, one of the stars of the night, Chavo Guerrero, who's quite good and had a very nice showing to bring Perfect Event to a credible contest. Uh, the mixed tag match that we that Dan mentioned uh, was as expected. I just don't think, and this is my opinion, that intergender works unless all established competitors are legit, or unless all competitors are established wrestlers. Uh, and in this instance, you had Shane Douglas and Conan, both, both respected wrestlers. Sorry, Rory. Um, versus two uh, Tigresses, I guess, would be categorized as a valet, and uh, Tori Wilson definitely would be. So I think that was kind of a miss. Buff, Bagwell, David Flair went exactly how you would expect if you've been keeping up with us in the last few months. Um, It got interesting with the cat versus uh, Sanders um, in a kickboxing match, which was also, I believe, for the commissionership of uh, either Nitro or WCW. Um, This match made Roddy Piper and Mr. T at WrestleMania 2 looked like Hagler Hearns. Um, nobody, <laughs> including the commentators, knew the rules. And to top it all off, we had a count-out finish to a kickboxing match. Um, Mike Awesome and Vampiro was the walking brawl we've all come to love and appreciate from Mike Awesome uh, throughout his tenure in North America. Vampiro kept up, and the finish was spectacular. Check it out. Top rope, Awesome Bomb. I wouldn't want to take that every night, but it sure looked good here. Yes. Um, and then, uh, shockingly, uh, the handicap match for the U.S. title, Hugh Morris slash General Rection uh, versus Lance Storm and Jim Duggan, was surprisingly good for the first uh, two-thirds of it. I realized that in the state of WCW that these are three 
credible wrestlers who understand how to put a match together and get heat and that sort of thing. That came through until your typical convoluted finish. Yes, it didn't walk out the door with Vince Russo, um, which included a ref bump and Major Guns uh, turning uh, against Lance Storm and then Hugh Morris <laughs> pinning Jim Duggan after completely missing uh, that top rope moonsault that usually looks so good. So overall, uh, before the first three matches, the first two or so hours of the show, um, there were some highlights, but generally speaking, it was a show uh, worthy of the 0.17 or thereabouts buy rate that's expected for it. I should say, dear listener, that we do have a bit of a wager going on between us, see how many times we can get WrestleMania 2 references into these reviews. <laughs> Eric made that one seamlessly. It was so seamless, I didn't even say, uh-oh, at any point when he did it. That one was equally as seamless, maybe not quite. Dan, you don't need to go through every match if you don't wish to, but just a bit of a bit of a primer for anybody who might not have seen the first two hours of Halloween Havoc 2000. Probably a fair bet to say it's most of our listenership, but... What were your thoughts on the first two hours before we look at the final three matches? Yeah, sure. I'll go, I'll go through why a couple of sentences for each thing. But I won't read them all out word for word, but I'll just quickly speak through them. First off, the opening up, where was the spooky set? That, that mm. bumpy, it, just, it just looked like... Oh, right, yeah. Right. It's just, right. It's, oh, my it's gosh. It's just another big screen with the starly background thing, like Nitro's been for God knows how long. It, I, was, I mean, where, where was the inflatable stuff? Where was, There wasn't any, like, comedy gravestones or anything like that but so yeah that already put oh me my god for the amount of money they spend on their stuff to not do that dan that is an incredible point and we i can't believe we all missed that that no, is incredible getting, what the hell nothing's getting past he, that that, or, that already set me off on a, on a bad mood jimmy i was looking going oh harry and harry this is fun this be nice fun set something fun to look 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 at at least if the even if the in-ring's not great they'll like and then the commentators might dress up or something like that nope none of that tonight great it's just Bigger Nitro, I guess. Just another anyway. episode of Nitro. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, to, to echo your point, Eric, God, the commentary in that first match was just god-awful. Conan, Stevie, and Madden all together. Like, I just wrote my two words there was just poor Tony. But it, it was but it was, it was, was fine. The, the hardcore match was what a hardcore match is in WCW. Again, nothing incredible, nothing good either, really. Yeah, I think Chavo basically led the the perfect event through that match and it was it was fine i think all credit to chavo on that one really um i agree with your point on the the mixed tag match it was just franchise versus conan with two valet spots sort of thrown in there and then yeah the david buff bagwell thing at least it didn't last long i guess and yeah my my first sort of sentence for the kickboxing match was well this isn't ending clean is it and well it didn't but i didn't think it would end in in a ring out, so they got me there. I thought it should end with when franchise uh, hit cat with a chain. I thought that was the ending, but nope, it was a count out because of course it would be. Why not? And then yeah, awesome vampiro was kind of what I expected it to be. That awesome bomb, yeah, I agree. You can't be bringing that out every week, but it's a good way for good way for a pay per view match to end. And yeah, I I agree with you. I think up until up until this point, the US title match was definitely sort of the match of the night because you've got um, a solid hand, Hugh Morris, a great sort of technical wrestler in, in Lance Storm and a veteran in Duggan. They all knew what they were doing and it was really good. Just a shame it sort of ended in a sort of a, with the ref bumps and yeah, Mor- Hugh Morris missing a moonsault to win. A bit of a shame really because that was that was doing quite well up until that point. But yeah, that was my sort of first two hours and 
it it wasn't the worst, but it wasn't anything good either. If you take the DNA match out of the equation, and I'm more than happy to do that, because the D word should be nowhere near anything involving that DNA match. The D match is dignity. This whole pay-per-view felt like an imitation of dignity to me. For your now standard, I'm afraid to say, average to goodish okay in ring work that you're probably going to get at best with a couple of minor exceptions mike awesome deserves being described a lot more than minor but he's still not being used properly at least he got to do that finish on pay-per-view that was worth something but everything seemed to be in the right place other than the set well spotted dan well spotted everybody missed that except this man everybody that's why we have him on but um the makings were there for a watchable show and after all the upheaval over the last four weeks and the fact that the company at the time when they were putting that show together they might have even thought there would even be a company the next day now that's how close to the wall this thing could have been so for putting a watchable enough pay-per-view together i do give them slightly grudging credit for but it all felt a bit sackcloth and ashes i we better slap something together. The effort was there, it must be said, but you, in, one hand, you can't do much more than what they're dealing with, than what they've actually got at their disposal, but they were probably doing a fraction over the bare minimum to actually glue everything together. Uh, it was a bit, look at us, we're still putting a pay-per-view on, but uh, those smiles were painted on. Let's say that. Speaking of paint, let's get to the anti-penultimate match of the pay-per-view. And this one and the remaining two we will look at in pay-per-view detail because they were the most important ones. And we can't abdicate our responsibilities too much, as much as I may or may not like to. So let's talk about Jeff Jarrett versus Sting, shall we? In his pre-match interview, Jeff Jarrett tells us we will see the metamorphosis of Sting's entire career, which doesn't make much sense, be it grammatical or otherwise. Will the concept of it hold up in front of the camera, I ask? Uh, we don't have to wait long to find out. A Sting jumps JJ from the bell and gives him a pass. And of course, even with this new format, I cannot avoid having to type the words and then he sends him into the guardrail. Of course, I can't back in and he puts on the brakes with a Stinger splash but gets off a clothesline over the top. So then an ow goes out over the PA. Dude Love has turned up. <laughs> no, it is actually somebody dressed up like the original Surfer Sting. I've put in my notes they missed the trick by not having this be Barry Windham, one for your historians. Our Sting sorts him out very handily indeed, though. Into the crowd we go, and down the steps comes the Nighty Sting, purple edition. He is no match for our hero either. So Sting saunters back to the ring, and before he and JJ can lock up again, there's the Wolfpack music, and I think you've cottoned on to what happens here own baseball bats probably the same one this time Jarrett does strike though and whack sting with another bat suplex on the ramp to follow but a ton of punches in the gangway chairs of a solar plexus before he gets tossed back in Jarrett with a cover and kick out to zero reaction despite stevie's claims that the fans are with the stinger Jarrett clamps on the sleeper but there's only way that ends yes Jarrett's belly to back suplexing out of sting's reversal attempt ahead of the game two count from the cover and it's turnbuckle no sell time that's got a better ring to it than Showtime, anyway. 
The usual house of fire offense from Steve-O, and now he goes to lock on the scorpion, but another crow sting emerges through the mat and drags him all the way through it. Where is Bobby Heenan to assure us that this is an illusion? Sting gets him out of the picture, but then out go the lights. And what do we see but repelling from the rafters, Sting? Repelling from the rafters. This dumpy fellow gets a death drop through the table, whilst Madden quotes from In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans. Pro wrestling, everybody. So the guy hooks on the scorpion, but another bloke what wears a Sting mask has popped in. His stuff isn't sold, but obviously Jarrett's guitar shot is. And after all of that, that is the three count. So the metamorphosis is complete. And as such, 33 years after he first asked the question, William Reese Mogg now knows who does break a butterfly on a wheel. Eric Landstrom. I mean, it's kind of a cool idea, right? Like, especially if you factor in that there's been all this chitter chatter in the sheets about changing Sting's uh, appearance or doing this hybrid Sting or this cool like Sting 2000 or whatever. Um, I think, you know, Crow Sting uh, died when the NWO died uh, and when he didn't beat Hogan clean at Starcade. And I think they've been kind of hanging on to that glory for too long. Uh, and I think it is time to update Sting and what a time to do it than for him to kind of uh, overcome all of his prior demons. Now, of course, he couldn't overcome all his prior demons in Jeff Jarrett's darn pesky guitar. Um, okay. Although, if you watch it close, Sting really wanted to kick out at 3.1 despite all of that. <laughs> um, so Jeff basically did everything possible between him and five other Stings or six other Stings to beat Sting. Uh, and again, this happens a lot with Jarrett where he goes, you know, he, he wins the match, but so much shit has to happen so that he can win that he comes out looking... Not any stronger. Uh, Sting, obviously, like who knows where this is going to go. So I thought, I thought this was a cool idea. I thought it was carried off poorly, um, and I think it almost kind of exposed Sting's lack of enthusiasm. Um, him having to do a lot in a match like this, you really have to be motivated to make it look good. And I don't know. I think if they just dummy this down a little bit, Jeff goes over or Sting goes over, preferably. Who knows where this is going to go? But yeah, this was exactly what you'd expect from a match between these two with a, a decent idea that should have been saved for a, a higher profile uh, position, probably against a different opponent. What are your thoughts, Dan? Well, if I was re- reading up about this match the, the day after, the morning after, and I just read the line, Jeff Jarrett wins because he hits Sting with a guitar. I go, OK, yeah bit annoying that it's a not clean finish, but yeah, that's how I expect Jeff Jarrett to win matches against someone like Sting. Unfortunately, I watched the match and it was not just that. It was, yeah, Jeff Jarrett and his army of Stings stung. No, uh, uh, <laughs> defeating Sting. Yeah, uh, it was, oh, it was so convoluted and so weird just watching this. I mean, if it was one, it probably it would have been fine. And yeah, another sort of interesting way for for Jeff to get the get a win, like distracting with one with like the first thing, the one in it, the nine 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 thing turning up to distract him, and then Jeff wins. That probably would again probably been would have been fine with me. But this is just just daft and stuff, and it, no one really seemed to want to be there either. Like. The, Jeff and Sting brawling in the crowd and stuff. It doesn't really seem like the thing they would do. I mean, we had it with Awesome and Vampiro, and that makes sense for those two. But Sting and Jeff Jarrett seems like a match should be, should be contained within the ring and probably sort of good technical match. And it could have been so much more, but it just wasn't. And yeah, I just 
I just want it to end really. As soon as it, as soon as I saw it the second and Thursday, I just want I'll get through what you need to get through and get the match over. Yeah, this was 15 minutes of Steve Borden being forced to look in a mirror and telling us at the end whether or not he liked what he saw or not. It's been said that what this feud was predicated on, which was Sting not having the heart for the fight anymore, not really caring too much about this professional wrestling lark. Steve Borden himself was somewhat miffed that that's where the storyline went. But as much as with Russo gone, we rightly bring up all this, how much we don't like all this shooty stuff, unless it's really for a purpose. This one was very much grounded in reality. We've talked about it before. This is just the job for the Stinger, I'm sad to say. Clock in at nine, clock out of five, and that's all you're going to get out of him. He's going to come in at that time. He's going to take half an hour for his lunch. He's not going to answer any calls afterwards. He's going to turn his work phone off. His out-of-office is always set at the beginning of the week anyway. Now, that's what you're going to get out of him. And if you're building a storyline on that to try to shame him into taking it more seriously, especially after what we talked about with Brett earlier, seems very counterproductive as long as Sting is still on their books and it's worth WCW still having any books, then you probably don't want to poke the bear too many times. Look at your career, Sting. Look at what you could have had and look at you now. But he's always been like that. The guy has always been a bodybuilder first and a pro wrestler second. No, his gyms are his passion in life, not lockups and stinger splashes. It never has been. So I don't know who it really is who's pulling these strings backstage, whether it's Kevin Sullivan, Terry Taylor or whoever. But whoever it might be, then it's a very dangerous game to play. If Sting ends up jacking it in of his own volition before the sale and WCW have no further say in what happens to him, whether he does, very fanciful to me, admittedly, does end up up north, or if he does jack in sports entertainment for good, then that is WCW. That's the final denouement. You know, nails in their own coffin, if that's even anatomically possible. That's what they would be doing here. And that's all this match was. So little in-ring action. I mean, the ending was probably, as you both intimated, where we were going to get to anyway. Jarrett needed to play no role in this. I didn't need... <sighs> All the stings were clearly just doughy indie people anyway. Was the joke meant to be that all of those stings were ineffective because Sting himself was a bit ineffective? I don't know. I'm probably reading far too much into it, far too much than it deserves, but that's kind of what I'm here for on the podcast. Yeah, match was nothing unintentionally interesting, maybe, but wrong time, wrong crowd, and most importantly, with the wrong person. Penultimate match is for the world title. Booker T defending against Scott Steiner. Big Papa Pump is not best pleased having to go on second to last, so he chokes out dear old Ricky Santana on his way to the ring. He then jaws with everybody when he does make it down there, including some schmuck in a Hulk rule shirt. Somebody didn't get the memo. Booker tries to get a very quiet crowd into it, but after the previous match, who can blame them? And he does, by most of them booing him. Oh, good. Ever get the feeling you're in the wrong job? 
Lock up into a hammerlock, but Steiner just elbows him in the mush to get out of it. Oh, he means it, man. Stomps in the corner by Steiner, but then Booker shows he is no shrinking violet either, with a big arbor of his own and a flying forearm for two. Now Popper stares out somebody in the crowd, and his eyes are like the proverbial wild animals. Oh my goodness. Either Scott Steiner is a method actor of such ability he could make Konstantin Stanislavski blush, or he's just fucking crackers. Terrifying. Anyway, he takes a sidekick back in the ring. Hard clothesline for the book scores a short two count and the ten punches of doom. The attendees in the crowd aren't having those either. Steiner then sends Book over the top and starts swinging the chair like a fucking madman. Yeah, like. But then an oddly sedate power slam to Booker through the table. The potion must be wearing off. Elbow drop gets Scott a two, and judging by his reaction, he is the only person on earth who expected a three there. A good old Greco-Roman arm lock is fought out of by Booker with a nice neck breaker, but the axe kick is very easily cut off. Set up on the top and a big superplex by Steiner, followed by the push-ups. Chops in the corner, but he can't get off the head to the buckle. And a twisting belly-to-belly for a near pull. T meets him with a boot, but a leapfrog sees Steiner fall right out of the ring. I feel like we don't see that sort of thing too often. Back in quickly, though, and a nice rolling cradle by Booker for two. Then a sidekick as, as I am sad to report, the booze are, as Paul Heyman would say, unrelentless. Missile dropkick by Booker for the win. No, Popper Pop is up. Popper Pop is up. (laughs) Ten times fast. Axe kick should do it, though. But no, Booker hurt himself on the way down, rather unconvincingly. Medeja slips in the pipe and right in front of Charles Robinson, he biffs Booker with it for the apparent DQ. Robbo has to climb the tree of woe as Booker gets trapped in the recliner. Other refs and security try their luck with him, but the line between bravery and stupidity is oft trespassed. JJ comes out to try and calm Steiner down, and I rather suspect that is a shoot, brother. Dan, some decent action here, I thought, but I couldn't look past A, the mind-meltingly frustrating DQ ending, and two, the fact that Scott Steiner is fucking mortifyingly scary at the best of times. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I um, really enjoyed sort of the, the start to this match. I did think this, as it should do, and I think it actually did actually have a quite a big fight feel to this match. Book of Science match I saw, I'm excited about. I've seen it a few times before for different titles, and it's always sort of been pretty good one to watch so yeah looking forward to this but i did always have that sort of inkling in the back of my head something rubbish is going to come at some point maybe i should just been me trained to even though he's gone (laughs) even though he's gone it's just the hangover of russo it's just something something's going to happen here i'm not going to get for the the fulfillment i wanted out of this match and lo and behold that happened what a disappointment it was such a shame for the end the way it did with scott steiner just going insane with the a lead pipe but i guess i don't know the plan is that they have a rematch or something i don't know but um to have a have your world title match end in a in a non-event or a non-finish is just always is a is a bitter taste in the mouth especially after the the first sort of 10 minutes or so of the match we were, we were looking really good and it looked like a really good match and it could have gone on in that vein for another 10 minutes easily for me it would have been fine and have a really good good finish but no couldn't couldn't let this one be clean either could you it just had to had to go and ruin it again so yeah all the sort of hope i had for this match was soon sort of taken out of it and yeah i just left 
unfulfilled again, unfortunately. But there we go. That's that's what we're used to, aren't we? Indeed, as you rightly say, they just had to. Eric, would you want to meet Scott Steiner in a dark alley, or a light one, for that matter? I don't think I would want to meet Scott Steiner. <laughs> um, your, your thoughts on the on the match, my friend? Uh, gosh, was it still the best match of the night? Um, I think it was. Uh, uh, I, I think yes, at least I would say so. I think it was headed in that direction, and I think they've probably eclipsed that mark unassailably, even despite the 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 finish that Dan was so right to criticize. Uh, you know. I guess, though, if they're trying to portray Scott Steiner as the monster that he seems to be in real life, then his anger would overcome the reality that if he does this, that he's not going to win the world title. So I guess I want to try to apply logic to something that they probably didn't apply all that much logic to. Maybe they did. Uh, that could be it. Uh, but no, I thought this was this was fine. And I'm I'm uh, these two can have a good match. And if they keep having good matches and eventually... There's, you know, some meaningful contest that ends in a relatively clean way between them. I think that can help distinguish a top uh, feud in WCW. Uh, the, these are, I mean, Steiner's not that old, and Booker is certainly on the up, uh, on the upswing. So, this, these are the types of guys that could support a WWF-run WCW. And so, uh, I say just keep having them do this, but uh, you know, maybe revisit the need for these types of finishes in main event spots. I think just DQs in world title matches, unless they are coming back to these two again next month, which is possible. I admit I, I buy Steiner as a madman. I don't have to spend too many, too much of my hard earned dough to actually make that purchase that he is a madman. But when he's on the, potentially on the cusp of victory and he's just whacking Booker right in front of the referee after 13 minutes of action. I just can't swallow that sort of thing. I I want to try to believe in as much as I can, that this stuff is still a sport. Fighting a losing battle, even with the greater emphasis on in-ring action in many places these days. But you just wouldn't do that, would you? You just wouldn't do it, no matter how fucking amped up let's say you are and it's a shame because the match to get there was legitimately good this was a quality power match i don't know how much of it was necessarily put together in the back or whether they just decided they'd go 50 50 through it until the finish but it really worked they threw bombs at each other booker gave as good as he got i'm very pleased to say in this one he probably felt he genuinely legitimately needed to that he couldn't hold back and he didn't. They went move for move with each other, really toe for toe. The pacing of it was good. Their timing was good. Kept it relatively simple. But I got the sense that they kept it simple because they were sticking to what they knew as characters who wanted to win the match before the finish. It didn't just feel like a power exhibition, as a lot of even decent power matches can. It felt like a power match, which makes the finish just stick in my craw even more it belonged somewhere else that belonged on a three minute nitro fuck around not a well-rounded well-crafted well-performed 13 minute world title match it felt important because i believed it was important but i cannot get past the stupidity of that finish i do hope these two get another go around on pay-per-view and unlike say booker versus jarrett i wouldn't have 
too much criticism if they did effectively give us the same match again. I think with the best will in the world, you give Booker T and a 13-minute main event match. This is the best you can hope for, but they very much did get there, and it's right that we credit them for that. Did I mention how bad the finish was? (laughs) It really was. So one more to go in Halloween Havoc 2000, and... I've only written one sentence for Chronic versus Goldberg because you only really need to, don't you? Uh, just to set the scene. <laughs> set the fucking scene. Chronic don't think Goldberg is cleared. Goldberg is cleared. He comes in. He beats up both of them in three minutes and wins. Eric Landstrom. Yeah, that's... that's... I, know, I, know, I know, sorry. I know there's a lot for you to process there, Eric. So do, do, do take your time. <laughs> Are you there, good sir? Oh, may have lost him. I think you might have lost him. Um, I'm here. Oh, there he oh, is. I'm there here. <laughs> Talk about being put to where sleep. Where did you oh, leave yeah, me? Oh, yeah, your thoughts where, on the match. Where, where, where? Uh, yeah, uh, it wasn't long enough to be the worst pay-per-view main event uh, I've ever seen. Uh, and that's the highest compliment that I think I can pay it. Chronic. No matter how short it was, this was chronic in the pay-per-view main event. Can we just talk about that for a second? If there's anything really to say. <laughs> no, there isn't. You're quite right. I just uh, no, I, no, I, I just no. You're, you're, you're right. I'm just trying to find something that's not just like abhorrent, you know, language <laughs> or just to like, like it's just. I, so if you think through this, okay. So if you think through this, if you want to reason through it. They didn't want to put the world title match in the main event because it was going to end in a disqualification. So that makes sense why they would move it. Okay, so what do you put in the main event? Well, Jarrett and Sting, uh, well, that's going to have another weird finish and heel's going to go over there. So you can't do that. Okay, well, then Goldberg is our biggest star. Put him in the main event. What's his match? Oh, shit, he's got chronic. Well, that match is going to be bad, whether it's one minute long or 10 minutes long. Uh, Goldberg does have a, you know, a fragile injury history. And Chronic are not known as exactly soft workers or very capable. So what we're basically doing is putting three bad workers who are notorious for injuring themselves and others in the ring together. Well, Goldberg's are, are, you know, our lead pony here. So let's just have him go over. And this is the closest thing we have to setting the fans home happy. So this match was the result of a lot of bad booking culminating in a pay-per-view that had no favorable outcomes to end your show with. Uh, and so what are you going to do? At least they kept it short. Eric, all of us on these programs are trying to find something that is not abhorrent. <laughs> it's, really, it's really why we're here. That's, that's, that's our base level, really, and it's up to us to try to drag it up from that baseline. How successful we are or not depends entirely on our source material. Dan, this main event, inverted commas. Uh, I have the line, there's no semblance of a match here. Now, I wish I could say I came up with that, but no, that was Tony on commentary. Yes. As this match was going on. <laughs> no semblance right. of a match here. And boy, he called it. I mean, it was just a segment, really, wasn't it? It was. It could have been done at any time during the show or or, or, or on any show. Didn't need to be on pay-per-view. And yeah, my only line after that was Bill wins, obviously, because, I mean, what other outcome was there really going to be? It's not as if, I mean, 
what they're trying to tell you that there's going to be some sort of fraught danger because it's a handicap match but it's chronic i mean it's not like it was like say if it was the the outsiders in 97 or 98 versus goldberg then yes you could say that that's that's a that's a more than credible threat or if it's like the steiners or something like that but but no it was chronic i mean a mid card at best tag team versus someone who's clearly not going to lose at least it was only a few minutes that's the that's the saving grace it it didn't hang around it didn't overstay its welcome it just didn't need to be where it was it really really didn't this is just to fill in the gaps there's lots of them so (laughs) but i'll be brief this is a storyline that apparently goldberg himself has come up with in which he is effectively trying to put the streak back together again starting from zero he needs to get back up to 178 or whatever the number supposedly was. And when he loses a match, he will be fired. Don't like that storyline. Far too many holes in it. Doesn't stand up to very close scrutiny. Nobody would put themselves in that position. Uh, it's one of those that sounds a lot cleverer than it is. It, it doesn't stand up for me. But Goldberg went ahead with it. He proposed it to Russo, by all accounts, because Vinnie Rue had one foot, one hand, one nose out the door. He just said, sure, whatever, do whatever you want. But of course, because of the way that Vince Russo has washed his hands of all of this stuff, this rather silly storyline is now somebody else's problem. And what else can they do? They either have Goldberg just beat everybody, everybody they want him to beat, and a chronic are as expendable as it can get, and so they should be. On the other hand, they can't have him lose to anybody because much like with Sting, if Goldberg's not on television anymore, then really... What else do you have? So this storyline is going to carry on with no drama, no intrigue whatsoever. It's just going to be Goldberg mowing through people again. And we love that two or three years ago because it felt like it was really happening. And really treading old glories at the end of 2000. It's not going to get people back. It might make them feel good about themselves in the here and now just to try to give themselves a brief fillip before the final tap on the shoulder comes, if indeed it does. But it's just not remotely close as satisfying a viewing experience watching Goldberg mow through guys as it was two or three years ago. It's after the Lord Mayor show, if ever it was. And for this to close this show, both try too hard and didn't try hard enough at all, I'm afraid. And a very damp squib to end, as much as the fans might finally have come alive for it. So, Dan, I'll come to you first. Obviously, we've skimmed through the pay-per-view this time, but do give us your overall thoughts and, for posterity's sake, a score rating out of 10. Sure. Um, my thoughts on it, it was... I mean, I think I sort of summed up almost with, with my sort of opening thoughts just on the on the, the case of the missing uh, Halloween set. It's it was none of this, this was just basically another sort of jumped up nitro. Nothing really seemed to. There's no real payoff to anything. I mean, the, the only sort of moment of, sort of joy was Hugh Morris winning, taking the US title off Lance Storm. If you're looking at it from a sort of simply sort of babyface heel sort of standpoint in terms of that respect, at least that was a, a sort of nice bit of resolution there. But it came after loads of interference and whatnot as did pretty much every other match so yeah it was it's just sort of really sort of lackluster and yeah that i mean as we talked about with the jeff Jarrett sting match could have been much better than it was and brooklyn steiner as good as it started it ended sort of unfortunately in the way it did 
which was a shame. So yeah, that is just that constantly going all the way through it. It's just could have been really good, could have been quite good, but ultimately it really wasn't. And in terms of the score, I wish I could give it higher, but I'm going to have to go with a three. It, it, there wasn't enough good weighing out the plenty plentiful bad. Eric, your final thoughts and score rating out of 10. Right. Uh, I think I pretty much agree with uh, everything that Dan said. Uh, this was a show that had glimmers of hope, but like, if you look back on it, was it worth whatever you paid for it? Or was it just a glorified episode of Nitro? Uh, and it, it kind of was the latter. Uh, so I think despite some of the things that were interesting, some of the people that uh, did better than others, Mike Austin, Chava Guerrero, Booker and Scott Steiner, uh, there's just a lot of head-scratching stuff. And the first hour, hour and a half, even up to two hours, basically irrelevant uh, and just a lot of poor planning, a lot of poor booking, a lot of poor booking decisions kind of crippled the entire show. And just the overall structure of the show left it ultimately uh, unsatisfying despite three matches which could have main evented and probably sent the the viewers, us, home a, a little happier. So uh, for all those reasons, I agree that this is a three out of ten show. Maybe maybe it's because this was just something to watch for two hours and 40 minutes now, and we're all just biding our time for when we hear the big stuff emanating from backstage. But I really didn't mind watching this one. The opener was sloppy but fun. We got to see the awesome bomb on pay-per-view. We got to see a legitimately good power match for the world title inexplicability whether it's a word or not up and down the card of course a motherfucking dna match because yeah it's really that simple goldberg beating chronic in three minutes in some horrendously called main event i'm just chopping up and down the card now yet another intergender match that shouldn't really be happening it's it's all there of course it's all there but i was able to sit down for the two hours and 40 minutes and just take it in and see it as a slightly below average professional wrestling pay-per-view I don't think we're going to get any better than that now for as long as WCW still exists in this form. When we get it, much like with the main event, we should just say, yeah, this is it. Let's just take it, not ask for any more. Because we know we're not going to get any more. We're just going to end up being disappointed. So a show that had enough good-ish moments to it, I'm going to be fairly kind to i do feel like i'm mocking the afflicted slightly by doing so but there we are i'm going to go for a four out of ten but not a recommendation don't need to seek out the matches that we just glossed over here but people are still trying in the wcw ring i feel that's something we always need to put on record but their efforts are always going to be in vain because sadly it's not about them anymore And as we zoom out of the time machine and back to early November 2020, that puts a bow on our WCW October 2000 show here on the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. I would like to thank my guests for this evening. Mr. Daniel Dwight, Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Fantastic contributions as ever. Good, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, glad to be back on. And uh, boy, that's that was a, that was something to worth watching uh, Halloween Havoc, but but yeah, happy with the new format, much more new stuff to come over the next six months. So yeah, 
good way to approach the WWE story for the rest of the the rest of its life, basically. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing more of it. And we will make sure we are there for it up to and including the end of March. Uh, Dan, where can people find you and what have you got going on? Uh, not much else sort of going on, but I am on Twitter at DSD247. Um, I don't post often, but I am there or thereabouts most days. Um, yeah, nothing else for me to promote um, other than to just look forward to, to more joyous 2000 moments coming up soon. <laughs> joyous. Other <laughs> adjectives are available. Eric, <laughs> we're, we're getting close now. We really are. We we really are. And, uh, you know, Rory, you and I are both uh, performers and entertainers, and, and Dan, maybe you are too, and fancy ourselves. You know, maybe we've played a couple music shows here, been in a couple plays here and there. You know, the people that really don't get enough credit are the behind-the-scenes folks. Um, and I just want to point out that, uh, you know, kind of in and out of timeline, that uh, 20 years ago, uh, October 3rd, uh, is when uh, Klondike Bill uh, passed away, and he was the guy basically who engineered the War Games cage. He was in charge of the WCW ring crew, uh, basically throughout our, uh, not basically, but throughout our entire podcast and before, basically until about six months ago when he fell ill. And I, I think he just, uh, you know, and, uh, a very important figure that gets lost is basically the guy that literally put the ring together and led that crew. So uh, yeah, shout out to Klondike Bill uh, and, and and all those guys. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we're we're yeah we're really getting there. And I agree, the new format seems to work. And, you know, if the news slows down, we'll just go back to the old format. It's not like we're, you know, this is just us being more flexible than WCW ever was. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'm optimistic for the next six months. And, yeah, we're going to make this as, um, as much infotainment as we possibly can. Klondike Bill, make a chair, to coin a phrase. Eric, where can people find you, my friend? Oh, just on Twitter. Uh, just, you know, hook up with the show account at Wrestling20YRS and you'll see me pop up here and there every once in a while. Always the best place to find us, Wrestling20YRS on Twitter. Just to wrap up, two more shows for you available for October. Watch out for those for ECW with the boy Lacey and WWF with the boy Chris White. Just want to give a shout out to another podcast, the Do You Love Us podcast. Fantastic show looking at the history and career of Manic Street Preachers. A specific hello to Mr. Lucas Way from that podcast, who is listening to us for the first time today, I hope. Shout out to Steve Murphy, if he is listening. We have a third guy on that podcast, the man who holds it all together, Adam Scott Glasspool. Not a wrestling fan, won't be listening, but even so. Uh, If you are somebody who does correctly identify my monthly Manic Street Preachers references during these podcasts, then do check that one out. It is a great, great show. Uh, Otherwise, for me, you can catch me on the Place to Be Nation Wrestling Network. I've got two other shows there. I've got the show called The Special Relations, where my fellow chums, Ben Locke and Callum McDougall, look at all things pro wrestling, really. A bit of retro, a bit of modern stuff. We might have a watch along for you. We might do some reviews and rankings. Varies every single month. No real no real thought. (laughs) no real format he says having changed the format on this show but always a good time so do check that one out and also monthly also on the place to be nation wrestling network uh, do listen to my show senior video if you like your coliseum videos uh, the references i made in timeline did not come from nowhere uh, where i look at a video which has been posted on the wwe network in the home video classic section with a rolling review of guests Next one will hopefully be the Rowdy Roddy Piper VHS from 1986 that I'm really looking forward to getting. 
getting my teeth stuck into. Notice I said teeth and not coconut. I'll save other puns for the program itself. But do check me out on the Place to Be Nation Wrestling Network and all the other fantastic wrestling-related and pop-culture-related content they have on there. Just search Place to Be Nation Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts. But all that remains for me is to say thank you very much once more to Eric Landstrom and to Daniel DeWitt. I have been Rory McNamara. The end is nigh.